0: Section Seventeen of the Empresses of Constantinople. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Botes, May two thousand and twenty. The Empresses of Constantinople by Joseph McCabe. CHAPTER Twelve, PART One. IRENE AND ANNA COMNENA The distinguished family of the Comneni has already made its appearance in our narrative. It may be recalled that the last chapter opened with a march of the great provincial nobles upon the capital, and the placing of one of their ablest representatives, Isaac Comnenos, upon the throne isaac's brave life had ended in heroic foolishness terrified by an apparition he embraced monastic life ignored the natural desire of his brother john to succeed him and handed the crown to the ducas family during the reign of eudocia the widow of john comnenus Anna remained in Constantinople to guard the fortunes of her children and eventually to help them to secure the throne. She was a woman of the old Roman build rather than Byzantine. Strong, ambitious, able and despotic. The Caesar John Ducas looked on her with just suspicion and accused her of treasonable correspondence with Romanus when he was struggling to regain his throne. She boldly asserted that the letters were forged and brandished an image of Christ in the eyes of her judges. But it was expedient to condemn her, and she passed to the melancholy Prince's Islands. Michael the scholar released her as soon as Diogenes was dead, and she returned to Constantinople to watch and work. She had something of the spirit of her father, who had sent so many of the enemy to the land of shades, that he had won the name of Alexius Caron. Her mother had been of the great family of the Delaceni. The feebleness of Michael and the insipidity of Nicephorus gave promise of a successful revolution, and Anna and her two sons were shrewd enough not to force the opportunity. The youth had first to learn the mastery of legions and to marry. There were, in fact, four women in Constantinople, all able and ambitious, who saw the throne for their children, and a stupendous amount of intrigue must have been expended. The four were Anna Komnena, the Empress Eudocia and Maria, and the wife of Andronicus, son of the Caesar John Ducas. Andronicus had been fatally wounded in war and condemned to a lingering death, and his wife pressed the Caesar to find good alliances for her three daughters. She was one of those virile and beautiful Bulgarian princesses who had found a way to Constantinople, and her eldest daughter, Irene, was now just marriageable. The wife of Andronicus, we do not know her name, shrewdly concluded that an alliance with the Komneni would best serve her ambition, and she pressed her father-in-law to bring about a marriage between Irene and Alexis, the elder of Anna's two sons. Alexis was a very promising and successful commander, who had recently lost his first wife, and he was not willing to wed the fair Irene. Anna Komnena, the younger, describes the pair for us, with her usual verbosity and inexactness, premising that it is beyond the power of art to reproduce their comeliness. Alexis was, it seems, a man of medium height, with very broad shoulders and a massive chest eyes of terrible splendor and a look that was at once both truculent and bland he seems in fact to have been a very ordinary young man with an extraordinary capacity for ruse and intrigue irene anna's mother was of course a paragon her face was like the moon though not quite so round and her rosy cheeks and fine blue eyes make the smile somewhat weak. Her look, like that of her husband, was at once sweet and terrible. The look of a Minerva of heavenly splendor, and calm and storm succeeded each other, as on the sea, in her expressive blue eyes. Her arms and hands were like carven ivory and her constant gestures extremely graceful in other words irene was a very pretty maiden of thirteen summers at the time with a large share of the spirit and temper of her bulgarian mother these fragments of anna komnena's art may serve to illustrate gibbon's indulgent complaint that it is more feminine than the artist herself The prospect of so significant a marriage released a fresh flood of intrigue. Anna, the mother of Alexis, remembered that it was John Ducas who had driven her into exile and would not hear of a match with his daughter-in-law. The emperor, Michael, regarded the marriage with distrust. His brother, Constantine, wanted to marry Alexis to his sister, Zoe, Eudocia's youngest daughter. Through this thicket of obstacles and intrigues, the wife of Andronicus fought her way with spirit, and not a little bribery, and the marriage took place. We may assume that this was in the second or third year of Nicephorus, when Irene, who was only fifteen at her coronation, cannot have been more than thirteen or fourteen years old the empress eudocia had now played her last card and resigned herself to the life of the monastery it remained to secure the favor of the lovely empress maria isaac comnenus had married her cousin irene and had therefore the entree of her palace the Slavonian ministers of Nicephorus watched him and his brother with concern, but he won the affection of Maria and, by generous distribution of money, the service of her eunuchs. It was presently announced that the Empress Maria proposed to adopt the successful young commander of the troops, Alexis Komnenos, and when this ceremony had been performed, Both brothers were at liberty to make lengthy visits to the empress. It is not difficult to accept the rumor that the relation of Alexis to his mother was not entirely filial. Alexis was no ascetic, and he notoriously strayed from his girl-wife. On the other hand, Maria had not shown much delicacy in marrying the white-haired sensualist, and the privilege of intimacy with a handsome young general of thirty-seven her eunuchs being bribed in his and her favour would be appreciated by her her mind was not strong and penetrating enough to see through the trickery of alexis he posed as an unambitious general loyally devoted to her reign and that of her son the emperor nicephorus probably felt that the young man would await the natural termination of his imperial orgies before seizing the throne, and seems to have regarded them with a certain genial indifference. His ministers, however, knew that their fortunes were ruined if Alexis came to the throne, and they insisted that Nicephorus must name a successor. He chose his nephew, a handsome young noble named Sinadenus. Maria was now seriously alarmed, since the accession of Sinadenus would mean the monastery for her and possibly death for her son, and she allowed the Comneni to witness her tears. They were, they said, devoted to her cause. Nay, they swore on the Holy Cross that they would acknowledge no rulers but Maria and her son, and she promised, in return, that they should be informed of any step that might be contemplated against them in the palace. I am following, almost entirely, the narrative of Anna Komnena, who enlarges with the most candid pleasure on the deceit of her father, and assures us that her grandmother Anna was the soul of the plot. In the palace of the Comneni, councils were held daily, and the virile mother directed the movements of her sons. It was a time of great anxiety. One night, Nicephorus invited Alexis and Isaac to his banquet, and Anna depicts them nervously glancing round them during the meal. For the guards or assassins who might have been summoned to dispatch them. But Alexis, a master of ruse and insinuation, warned the emperor, and when a charge of treason was afterwards brought against him, he easily cleared himself. At last, a message came to the mansion of the Comneni from Maria that Barillas, one of the Slav ministers, intended to seize the throne and put out the eyes of alexis and it was decided that the time had come for the action alexis hastily made a tour of the city persuading some bribing others until he had a large number of officers and senators bound by secret oath to support him anna meantime made preparations for the flight of the family during the night The chief weakness of their position was that a young relative of the emperor had recently married a young girl of their family and lived with a tutor in an outlying part of their mansion. Anna, regarding the tutor as a spy, locked them in their rooms when they were asleep, and before dawn the whole Komneni family set out on foot to cross the city. At that hour of the night there was little watch in Constantinople and the nervous band the mother the two brothers with their wives children and sisters and a few servants passed safely and silently down the colonnaded main street as far as the forum of constantine where horses awaited the men they bade each other farewell in the darkness of the early spring morning and the brothers galloped to the Blachernae palace where they broke into the stables, chose the swiftest horses, hamstrung the rest of the horses, and fled to the army which awaited them in Thrace. The women and children made their way noiselessly back along the messe to the cathedral. As they went along the street, the glare of a torch appeared in the distance, and they found themselves inconveniently accosted by the tutor Anna kept her presence of mind, however. They had heard, she said, that they were accused of some crime, and they were going at once to St. Sophia, but as soon as the day broke, they would go to the palace to demand justice, and she begged the tutor to go on to the palace to announce their intention. As soon as he had gone, they made for the house of Bishop Nicholas, an annex of the cathedral into which fugitives were admitted during the night rousing the doorkeeper they announced themselves they were all heavily veiled as a party of women who had just landed at the quays from the east and who would render thanks to the almighty before repairing to their homes they were admitted to the church and when the officers of the infuriated emperor arrived In the early morning, they found that nothing less than a violation of the sanctuary would put the women in the power of Nicephorus. Anna, in fact, clung to the gates of the sanctuary and exclaimed that the soldiers would have to cut off her hands to remove her from the church as the Slav ministers threatened. Isaac's wife, Irene, an Iberian princess like her cousin Maria, followed the example of her mother-in-law and, we must imagine the younger Irene and the children standing by, with large and tearful blue eyes, taking their first lesson in Byzantine politics. Nicephorus temporized and swore to spare their lives. Anna shrewdly stipulated that his oaths should be taken on the large cross which the Sybarite emperor always wore and when this had been brought and the oath guaranteed to them the women passed from the church to the palace fortress monastery at petrion on the golden horn there they were soon joined by the wife and mother-in-law of george Paleologus, a dashing young commander who had fled with the Comneni, and by sharing their delicate meats and wines liberally with their jailers they secured a constant account of the progress of the insurgent brothers. They heard presently that Alexis and Isaac had safely reached the camp in Thrace, and that it had needed only a little further intrigue on the part of Alexis for the troops to proclaim him emperor. The next news of importance was that the brothers were encamped with their troops on the higher ground, without the city walls, and Nicephorus was distracted and terrified. But we may tell in few words the success of the Komneni. The formidable walls of Constantinople were held by the Varangian guards and Immortals, on whose blind fidelity a ruling and paying emperor could always rely but the extravagance of Nicephorus had in three years exhausted the treasury. Its doors stood open for any man to enter the empty building. The troops were few, and uncertain mercenaries had to be enlisted in the defense. Alexis bribed the German soldiers who held the tower overlooking the Blacherne gate, and at dawn of Monday Thursday, 1081, his troops poured into the city it is one of the few points in favor of alexis that he here made a very human blunder which might have cost him his life and his ambition instead of holding his troops to scatter the guards who had retreated upon the palace he rode at once to petrion to see that the women were safe and his soldiers a motley and savage crowd of Thracian and Macedonian mercenaries spread with fiendish delight over the city, violating nuns in the monasteries and burdening themselves with wine and loot. Paleologus saved them by a bold and crafty seizure of the fleet, cutting off the emperor's retreat to Asia. Nicephorus wavered between the vigorous counsels of his ministers and the command of the patriarch that he should abdicate and prevent civil war but his hesitation enabled the troops to rally and with a melancholy farewell to his perfumed baths and opulent banquets he suffered himself to be shipped to the opposite shore and shaved into a monk the empress maria is described as trembling in her palace during these critical days of the holy week clinging to her boy Constantine, a pretty seven-year-old lad with curly golden hair and pink and white complexion. Alexis had apparently deceived her, and the Comnenian women would have little consideration for her. For some days, however, she remained in quiet possession of her apartments, and a very keen discussion took place in Constantinople as to the intentions of Alexis, he had put Irene, with her mother and sisters, in the lower and older palace, while he, his mother, brother, and other relations, had taken residence in the more important Bucolian palace by the water. Did he propose to put away his dull wife and wed the riper beauty? Such things had happened before, and the careful reader of Anna Komnena's discreet narrative, will easily believe that that was the intention or the disposition of Alexis. He had treated Irene with coldness and disdain, other chroniclers tell us, and been unfaithful to her. But the little Irene had her party, or Maria had her enemies, and the indecision of Alexis was forced. Paleologus drew up the fleet before Bucholeon. When Alexis sent orders to him that the sailors must not acclaim Irene, he boldly replied that he had not done all this for Alexis but for Irene, and her name rolled from galley to galley. Next, the Caesar John Ducas intervened and urged Maria to retire. Probably he sought favor with Anna. Alexis still hesitated, and Irene was not crowned with him. Speculation in the city was now seething, but a curious circumstance soon ended the hesitation of Alexis. His mother was devoted to monks generally, and one in particular she so esteemed that she insisted on his being appointed at once Patriarch of Constantinople. The actual Patriarch, Cosmas, swore that he would not resign in favor of the monk, until he had crowned Irene, and Anna had now an additional incentive to press her son. Within a week of the coronation of Alexis, the second coronation took place, and Irene began to share the bed and the throne of her husband. The last hope of Maria had gone down before her more virile and older antagonist, and she prepared to retire. Her son, Constantine, was clothed with the imperial dignity, and an imperial rescript, written in the red or purple ink, and signed with the golden seal of the emperor, guaranteed their safety. With this precious document, Maria retired, accompanied by her son, to a somewhat remote palace in the imperial domain, and we may briefly dismiss her from the story. Some years later, a pretext was found to remove her from her semi-imperial state and lodge her in a monastery. Her last recorded act is that she bethought herself of her first and real husband, who still lived in Constantinople, a titular bishop of Ephesus, and asked and obtained forgiveness. Alexis now hastened to form about his throne a bulwark of loyal and richly rewarded friends, and the court resounded with sonorous new titles and glittered with new insignia. Another noble, Nicephorus Melissanus, had sought the throne at the same time as Alexis. He was disarmed with the dignity of Caesar and the remote governorship of Thessalonica. Isaac received the newly created dignity of Sebastocrator. Michael Taronita, who had married the sister of Alexis, rejoiced in the opulent name of Sebastos, and the younger brothers were created Proto-Sebastos and Sebastos. When we recollect that the wife of each had a corresponding title and state, we appreciate the splendor of the processions, which now constantly fed the enthusiasm of Constantinople. For a time, however, life in the palace wore a humorously mournful complexion. The appalling outrages of Alexis's troops had sown bitterness in the minds of the people, and the memory of them had to be obliterated. Any other emperor would have at once provided a glorious series of chariot races and flung golden showers from his chariot. Alexis Comnenus found a less expensive device, unless we care to attribute the scheme to his mother, whom he consulted. The new patriarch was humbly begged to impose a penance on all the royal inmates of the palace and he decided that forty days of fasting and prayer would efface the stain. Alexis himself generously went beyond the letter of the penance. He slept nightly on the ground and wore a hair shirt, and took care that all the citizens knew it. His brothers, his mother, and the other women of the family embraced their share of the imposition And for five or six weeks the Bukolian palace resembled a monastery End of Section seventeen Recording by Mike Botes